Welcome to Talking to Myself. I'm Elizabeth Monson. And I'm Elizabeth Meyer. And this is our podcast where we read self-help, self-improvement texts and summarize them for you and talk about how they work into our lives. And this week we read Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less by Greg McKeown. Nice. So, yeah, what's an, what's an essentialist? What's an essentialist? Or why did we read this? Well, I was recommended this book at some point by someone we both know and love, Jessica Kia. Shout out to Jess. Yeah, now she's going to have to listen to us. Um, but her and her husband both really liked this book and recommended that I read it um, for being like sort of a life-changing business text. So now that I think of it, I, I usually listen to my books on Audible. You did talked about that several times. And no, my husband had the book. And when I opened it up to start reading it, I saw a Christmas card in there from his manager. His manager gave him this book because he really likes to operate by the essentialist principles. That's a nice gift. Yeah. I like a book from a boss. Yeah. All right. So what is an essentialist? So an essentialist is... Exploring the very critical things you want to pursue, then being willing to eliminate the rest, and building a platform for effortless execution. How did you interpret The Essentialist? Well, I didn't write this. I just pulled out a quote. But mine is more essentialist than yours. (laughs) I need to work on this, clearly. Less but better. Live by design, not by default. Do the vital few, not the trivial many. That's a good one, too. And that actually does um, the four-part breakdown better justice than my explanation does. So basically, this book is all about how, it's about what an essentialist is, and then also how to create those structures in your life. So it's broken down into four parts. Meyer, do you want to take us through the four parts? Yeah, sure. So part one goes through the core mindset of an essentialist. So what are the distinguishing features between the essentialist and, as Greg McKeown calls them, the non-essentialist? Yeah, which is a nice, subtle shade. Yeah. I like it. Exactly. Uh, Two is discerning the trivial many from the vital few. Mm -hmm. Then three is cutting out the trivial many and some ways that we can do that. And then four is all about execution, so making the vital few things appear to be near effortless. Cool. Yeah. So, question for you. Are you an essentialist? Probably not, as indicated by (laughs) my verbose definition. It wasn't verbose. But there are many things about the essentialist lifestyle that I can get behind and have certainly been working on since reading this book. Nice, nice. Like, How about you? Um, I feel like I am. I think you to are. To be honest, I do feel like I am. And also, I feel like sometimes it's very hard to put it into practice. Because even if you're an essentialist or live by some of these principles or work by some of these principles, like doing less is not always popular, even if it's better but less. Um So it's something that I think about a lot and I always try to incorporate into my work and my life, honestly. Um, But I do find it hard sometimes. Yeah, so we'll talk about a lot of the reasons why 
being an essentialist isn't always the popular choice. Yeah. Um, to kick things off, I guess we can we can start by talking about this part one mindset of an essentialist, mm-hmm. which is really all about celebrating the power of choice, um, but also about taking the time to explore all of the options that are out there. So one of the reasons this part really resonated with me is because the author talks a lot about how we have so much information at our disposal. Information overload. Information overload. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that we decided to start this podcast in yeah. the first place is because mm-hmm. you have all of these all of these directions you can really take your life. And I think our generation feels really pressured to take on a lot because it's all really accessible. The essentialist actually takes more time to explore more options, whereas the non-essentialist takes less kind of time. Rush into all these things. Exactly. So really evaluating the decisions you're going to make are, are really important to living an essentialist lifestyle. And I think we keep using these terms and they're really easy for us to digest because we read this book, but there's one graph that I really liked in the beginning of the book that sort oh, of yeah, helped yeah, put totally. things into perspective. So there are two depictions. One of them, the one that you're thinking of, is a squiggly line, right? Yeah. And a then bird's nest. A, a big a big old bird's nest. And then that's obviously the non-essential graph. And then the essential graph is what? It's a line. It's just it's an a, arrow. A simple arrow. line. Clean and concise. And then the graph that I was thinking of very similar is shows a thousand different arrows pointing into all different directions, little tiny, tiny arrows. And then the other one, the essentialist graph, shows one arrow pointing straight up. And really what that says is if you choose to divide yourself in 5,000 different ways, you're just going to divide yourself in 5,000 different ways. If you start to think about the trade-off, and the trade-off is a really positive thing here. It's not what do I want to give up, it's what do I want to go big on, then your arrow goes straight up. Yeah. And you succeed because you've identified what your values are. It is an interesting thing that you brought up, though, that you really have to fully vet all of the different options before you know what you want to go big on. It's not about just, like, cavalierly choosing something and then putting all your energy towards it. Like, you actually kind of have to go deep down some of these paths before you're going to know whether it's your your main jam or not. Yeah, and in this age of information overload, it means that there are lots of distractions. So often it's really hard to find ample time to carve out that's just dedicated to thinking. Just exploration. Yeah. So I did like that part, thinking, stepping back, evaluating. It's hard to know. I mean, have you figured out what's what's really important to you that you want to go big on? I, I think no. It's hard. It's yeah. really hard. Still evaluating. Yeah, but I wouldn't say that I'm, like, really evaluating either. Like, I think you really have to – you would have to commit in your mind that, like, you're in the evaluation process and you're going to try out different things. Yeah. Or, like, I'm not even really in that. I sort of am. Yeah, that's good. The one thing I I took away from part one that I really liked was he quotes John Maxwell, and the quote is just that you cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything – and that really sticks with me because really when it comes down to it, so much is just not important. 
but it's easy to get caught up in feeling like something is important or like if you want it to be important or feeling busy and not making you feel important. Um, and that's just so anti-essentialist. Yeah, I mean, the author, the author's example was pretty horrifying. I don't remember. He decided that he needed to embark upon a an essentialist lifestyle because he either missed the birth of one of his children oh, or he yeah, wasn't yeah, there yeah. at the hospital with his wife because he had a really important client meeting and he thought he would earn brownie points for showing up and telling everyone that his wife had just given birth, but he said... He saw this look of pity around the room as people realized yeah, that he like, thought that was more important. Why on earth are you here when yeah. there's this important life And they would happening? literally never remember his presence at that meeting 10 years down the road, but his no. wife will always remember that he ran out to go to a client meeting. Well, so yeah, he, especially since he wrote about it. Totally. He immortalized it. Yeah. Um, okay, so part two, exploration. How do you figure out the trivial many from the vital few? Well, he talks a lot here about thinking, debating, playing, and questioning as a means to look at the bigger picture. In this part, I pulled out the fact that he talks about play and, like, looking at what you like to do as a child or acting like a child, and that really reminded me of, for, like, our OG podcast listeners, when we read El Luna's The Crossroads of Should and Must, and it's all about, like, what you did when you were a kid that excited you and how that can show or, like, indicate what you might be interested in doing as an adult. Um, and it kind of had that same same vibe. Yeah, just basically saying that like when... energizes you. Yeah, and also it broadens your perspective. Usually yeah. you're so used to thinking narrowly about something. And um, he says that play is actually vital to the essentialist lifestyle. Also sleep. I dig it. Sleep, that was a really big one. So he called it protecting the asset. Yeah. And I liked that verbiage as well because that's sort of also goes back to several of the different threads that we've discussed in our previous podcasts where humans and people are your number one asset. And yeah. you function at a higher capacity when you've had a good night of sleep. Yeah, it's like you're just a better worker when you're a better whole person too. So if you're having fun... If you, like, are feeling good, if you have had sleep, if you, like, exercise, whatever it is, you're going to do better work and be more focused and more productive. Also. Also, the power of extreme criteria. That one is basically, if something's not a hell yeah, it's a no. So when you're choosing to do something, if you're feeling like, yeah, I could do that. You're like, sure, why not? You should actually decline it. Yeah. You, can, you should only go for the things that you feel like, like, yeah. He actually has you do an exercise for it, right, where he says, think of the single most important criteria about making this decision and rate it on a rubric of 1 to 100. And if it doesn't score over a 90% in your mind, drop it. It's not worth it. Yeah. That's really hard for people to do because a really good-sounding idea can be very enticing. But if yeah. it's not a hell yeah, then it's just not worth your time. I feel like this is one where I often feel like things aren't essential and other people think that they are. <laughs> yeah, that's hard. It really is hard. Um, the, the big pop culture example that he used for this one was Warren Buffett. 
Uh-huh. He said that 90% of Warren Buffett's wealth comes from just 10 investments. Yeah. So he's passed up a lot of really great opportunities. Really great. For, and just gone all in with the hell yeahs. And now he's freaking rich. I know. But in is my mind, I was just like, it? he could have been even richer. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. just kidding. That's not how it works. All right. Part three. How to eliminate. Ask, what will you say no to? What will you say no to? Well, I mean, usually the question is, what are you going to say yes to? Right. I think that's sort of where we start to get into feeling the need to really please people is usually what leads to saying yes, is what leads to living the non-essentialist life. Mm-hmm. So... You kind of need to have that clarity in advance, though. Yeah. Like, it's hard in a workplace where things are coming at you. And I don't know. If you don't have that clarity from the outset, you can get so distracted by things. And to actually take the time and figure out what the purpose is to give yourself the ability to say yes and no to things, like, is such a rare opportunity. So, I mean, this is the... Now I'm getting part, into the problem. This is the part of the book that I had the hardest time with. Yeah. So we we can talk about that too, I think. Okay. You're really set up for success or empowered to say no when you work for a company that's established clear values. So yeah. if you work for an essentialist company, it's a lot easier to be, be an, an essentialist. essentialist. If you don't, then... Yeah, you can't be one essentialist in a world of exactly. non-essentialists. When there is a serious lack of clarity about what a team stands for and what their goals and roles are, then people often tend to experience stress and confusion and frustration. So there's another great little uh, great little chart in here that basically shows what an essential intent is in terms of a company's mission statement. So we have inspirational statements that are so general that they're almost entirely ignored. And then we have these like vague general values like innovation, leadership, and teamwork. And these are typically really just too bland to inspire any passion. And then he goes on to talk about what an essentialist mission statement could look like. Mm -hmm. And he uses the example of Brad Pitt rebuilding oh, yeah. New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. What's this company called again? He started an organization called Make It Right with the essential intent to, quote, build 150 affordable green storm-resistant homes for families living in the Lower Ninth Ward. So I think we've probably all worked for companies that have had a really vague and general generalized mission statement and what that does is it makes it really hard for employees to know exactly what the number one thing is that they should always be getting behind or how they're contributing to that overall goal yeah or how you can actually measure success oh yeah so Brad Pitt with the win good for him what a pro and handsome got it all maybe crazy one other thing that I liked related to that being unclear about your purpose thing was he <laughs> said that real intelligently, um, but he said <laughs> that whole purpose thing. He was saying that when people don't have clear purposes is when they resort to social games, 
which I thought was very interesting. And that's when you start comparing yourselves to other people. That's when power struggles come into play. All of that. Office politics. Office politics. And it can get really toxic really fast. And really the antidote to that is having a clear purpose and an organization that knows what they're working towards and can actually work towards that as a group. I found that optimistic in a weird way. Like, oh, there's a way out of this. Yeah, but again, a lot of it comes back to management. Yeah, totally. All right, part four, execution, and then we can talk about some of our like problems and how we'll take away these pieces. So effortless execution, the first thing that he talks about is building a buffer. Build a buffer. So planning ahead, he Ooh. says... Nice try. (laughs) Plan ahead. Plan ahead. Evaluate risk. And then he talks a lot about scenario planning. And building a buffer can be anything from thinking it takes you 10 minutes to get to work to building in 10 extra minutes to make sure that you actually get there on time Mm -hmm. to having your syllabus distributed on the first day of school, looking at the calendar, seeing when the big projects are due and starting to work on them, you know, earlier on than saving them and cramming the night before they're due. Yeah. So basically you just use every little lesson that you learned in like high school for how to manage your time. Yeah. But when you have one focus, it's going to be easier to succeed. So what did you really like about this book? So in general, I really liked it. I think it's a good read for anybody. It's a great gift from a boss to someone that they're managing. Um, It's pretty quick read. And I think there's just a lot of super immediate takeaways for anybody who's looking for like a little bit of direction or maybe like a little like extra boost in kind of how they're planning out their career or how they're approaching their daily life in an office. Um, So I think it's super helpful and it's pretty quick. Um, I definitely, I mean, we come up with, we come up with every time we read a new book at this point, but there were so many threads that felt really similar to a lot of the other books that we've read. Um, and so it almost felt like this was kind of one that you could read to take away a lot of the pieces of other ones. So like I mentioned, it was kind of like El Luna's and the fact that like you should go to what you've always been inspired by, even as a kid and like have that sense of play in everything you do. It was kind of like the power of habit where making choices is hard, but the more choices you make, it can become almost a habit that you have and like narrowing down to the most essential just becomes how you operate if you can create a habit loop around it. Um, And I feel like he actually used some of the same examples. Um, And also setting up routines can make being an essentialist easier. And then I also brought me back to the happiness trap Um, essentialism isn't about just like success or like one definition of success. It's about having a really rich and fulfilling life. So it's about having success in your work. It's about having whatever kind of family life you really want to have. It's about feeling good about yourself personally. Um, and you really have to like know your core values in order to make that happen. Anyway, so I felt, I felt it intertwined really heavily with some of these other books in a nice way. I also really think that essentialist organizations are the most successful ones. And so I think that any company should strive to have an essentialist mission statement and operate on essentialist principles. I mean, we were talking about this today, but like 
look at Google, Apple, and Amazon, like some of the three most successful companies right now, and they all are super essentialist about what they are going after. I mean, like, I don't know if Google's mission statement is super measurable in terms of do no evil, but <laughs> they all have really narrow focuses in terms of what they're trying to accomplish, and that shows in their value. Um, what else did I like? I love, like, if, if it's not a hell yeah, it's a no. I think that's a really easy way for people to think about making tougher decisions. Um, I also thought it was kind of funny that, I don't know if he, he uses a closet cleaning metaphor, and as someone who loves to clean out my closet all the time, um, you can also think about essentialism as basically like Marie Kondo for your life. And now Marie Kondo is kind of a joke. But <laughs> it's basically like if it doesn't bring you joy, drop it. He also says he uses the term endowment. And that's during the phase of uncommitting from something. Oh, right. And yes. He talks about cleaning out your closet as the example. And he says that there's this exercise um, that you you can do about really anything in your life. But for the closet example, how much would I pay for this if I didn't already own it? Yeah. That, I think that's a hard question for people to ask themselves. I mean, it's super important. I think in a business sense, it's almost easier. Like, if I wasn't halfway through this project, like, how much would I decide to invest in it up front? Yeah, totally. Or if I wasn't on this task force, how hard would I try to, to get on to it? Get onto it? Yeah. And so I think that the business side of that question is a lot easier than, like, what would I spend on something? He acknowledges that people own things and that they have sentimental value. Yeah. But it's still an interesting exercise because... Everyone overvalues things that they, they already do have. Because they bought them for a reason. But, yeah. I mean, one of the quintessential things to say about something in your closet is, what if this comes back into style? Or well, it will because things always are totally, coming into style again. It totally will. But this question forces you to get a little bit less emotional about that and a little bit more practical. Yeah. To go back into the closet metaphor. I mean, we are fashion girls at heart. Someone once or I read somewhere, I don't know, but there's a rule of getting rid of things in your closet. If you have like tried it on three times and taken it off because you didn't feel like wearing it, then get rid of it, which one. totally works because I absolutely have those things where I'm like, oh, I love it, it's great, yet I never wear it and I even put it on my body and take it off. And I think he talks about in this, like in terms of getting rid of things in your home, like having a place where you put things so that there's like, you just like have a place in your house where you have like a staging area for getting rid of stuff. And then you like mentally detach from it, even though it's not totally gone and then you get rid of it. Um, and I also kind of like that because I literally do that. Yeah. And that's, that's also part of the creating the routine around yeah. essentialism where not only do you have a place to put the things, you know the hours of your local Goodwill and you'll stop by on a Saturday morning. Yeah. Just make a routine out of it. It's good. It's all good practice. Even if it just seems like a silly little thing, it is really good practice because it's hard to focus. Yeah. And so two things that I do that I think like are directly referenced by this book are that one, I have insane decision fatigue. Like when there's lots of decisions to make, I'm like, and I'd say that's more in my life than in business. Like usually in business, I can figure out what I think is the right decision and just go with it. 
also because oftentimes the stakes are low. Like you can make changes. Um, but I have a really hard time with decision fatigue. And then in terms of focus, as you mentioned, trying to focus on what's important right now. Like what is the most important thing to do right now is very hard for me. I get a lot of anxiety about the future and I'm such a worrier. Like what's going to happen tomorrow? Like what's going to happen next week around this? Like, like what am I going to do in blah, blah, blah. And I, I am just like such a, I'm such a worrier about things. And so that's something that like he talked kind of about how to address that and try to live in the now and focus on what's the most essential thing at this very moment. And I'm better at big picture essential thinking rather than like right now. Yeah. I mean, it's like the, like make a to-do list of the three most important things you have to do today. And mine is like 16 things long. And in the beginning of the book, he talks about the word priority. Oh, yes. Priority was always singular until the 1800s when an IES was added onto it. So actually at the root of the word, it means the singular most important thing. So you yeah. can't have 16 priorities. Yeah. It's an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. So I still have a hard time with saying no. I know that it's something to work on and it's absolutely not something to be ashamed by. Yeah. I have a hard time separating requests from the person that they're that the request is coming from. Oh, completely. So I do still struggle with no, but I have this little anecdote, which I thought was great. I, when I was reading this book, I was visiting my husband's family in Miami and uh, my in-laws are lawyers mm. and they have a practice. They have many ways of saying no. They <laughs> Exactly. They're trained at saying no. So they have a partner and I was meeting their partner for the first time and she said, you know, the, I would say, and I don't really know too much about law firms, yeah. but it appears to me from all of my friends who've gone into this practice that they're, it's still one of those industries that's fairly antiquated. Mm-hmm. And so therefore it's probably pretty hard to be an essentialist there yeah. and to say no to things. I mean, literally it's all about billing yeah, your hours. Um, and this woman said, that when she started as a young lawyer, she had children, really, and she had pictures of her children all over her desk. And, you know, she talked about it if people asked her about it, but it was just very clear, you know, she'd leave work and go pick them up from school. Mm -hmm. And um, one year she told her colleagues that she was going to take her son to get a picture with Santa at the mall. And it sounds like kind of a trivial thing, I guess. But she had talked about it enough times and established that her kids were her number one priority. Mm -hmm. And so when something came up at the law firm, nobody expected her to be there because she had already stated time and again that that was the day that she had carved out to take her son to get a picture with Santa. So I thought that was really nice because she's a woman in a field that at that time was dominated by men. Yeah. And she also is part of this huge, hugely bureaucratic corporate industry where it's really probably pretty hard to say no as a young lawyer. Yeah. I think, I mean, we talked a little bit about how this book feels more complicated for women to say no to things 
because it's just a fact that men can say no and maintain a level of respect that women can't always. And sure, there are always, like, outlier cases. But there was many times when I was reading it where I was just like, this is not realistic for a lot of women. Yeah, and he he tries to differentiate popularity from respect. So saying that, saying no, making a difficult decision in the moment can decrease your popularity in the short term, but increase your respect in the long term. Which is probably true, but also like... I don't know, not that valid. But I think that those, that's the thing. I think those two things are too intertwined. And there are just so many instances I can think of where it just doesn't go that way. Yeah. And then what happens? You mess up your whole career. I I mean, it seems like the rewards, if it worked, would be really fruitful. But if it didn't, then it could be really detrimental. Yeah, completely. Or, yeah, and I think it's just something that, like, it, has to take women more effort to do this than men because it's not what's expected of them. But I also think that what you said is important about this woman, like stating clear boundaries for herself, um, because that can really be a way around it is that if you like really establish those boundaries up front and she knows herself very well and what she wants, um, then what people are asking you to do is like break a boundary that you've already established or they're asking, they're trying to break it. And what's nice about that is in this particular instance, she didn't have to say no. Yeah, exactly. You can eliminate saying no. It's not necessarily the case for like a young woman. It isn't, no. But it's interesting to think about. So what did you think about the author's tactics for saying no graciously? I thought they were kind of stupid. They were like, I'll have to get back to you on that. If you could do it over email, then you could buy yourself a a window of time. Pretending you attached your essay and you didn't. That's what I thought. It felt like a cop out to me. It's like everybody (laughs) knows when you say, I have to get your check my calendar and get back to you, and then you never get back to them that you didn't want to do anything with them in the first place. Right. You should just be more upfront. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't know that he gave a lot of successful ways to say no. He, he talks about how to say no in the workplace, and there's one example where if you're approached in person by a manager who's asking you to take on extra work and you can't, you can tell them that you'd be happy to take on the extra project and ask them to help you figure out which of your other projects to deprioritize. I actually do think that's pretty useful. I think that one works, yeah. Because then it honestly, like, it puts them back, it puts it back on them. And also you're not really saying are. no. You're not really saying no. Exactly. And if you work in an essentialist office environment, then you could take that one step further and say, help me prioritize which of the projects on my plate is best going to help us achieve our mission statement. Yes. That would be a fantastic the fantasy ideal world scenario. that I can literally not imagine I can't wait for ever. someone to hire me in that imaginary <laughs> job. That's so fantastic. I mean, that's, yeah. I can imagine that conversation exactly going like this, where it's like, help me prioritize which one of my things I have to take off my plate then. And you come out of it doing everything. A lot of it feels like a privilege. Yeah. Or, yeah, you have to work somewhere that has that already believes in this to be able to impact it or just like have to be senior enough. 
I suppose you could run your team this way within an organization that isn't necessarily essentialist, but it seems like it would be hard. Something that he brings up a bunch is like how to use this as a guide for finding what you want to do in life. And he asks three questions that I think are pretty interesting. I don't know if they stood out to you very much or not. But when he says you can, you should ask yourself, what am I deeply passionate about? What taps my talent? And what meets a significant need in the world? I like that. It's like another way to try to figure out what you really need to be doing. I have another quote that I liked. Okay. This quote is, it's under the section of grace or power of a graceful no. And it is remind yourself that everyone is selling something. This doesn't mean that you have to be cynical about people. I don't mean to imply people shouldn't be trusted. I am simply saying everyone is selling something, an idea, a viewpoint, an opinion in exchange for your time. Simply being aware of what is being sold allows us to be more deliberate in deciding whether we want to buy it. Which I also find very helpful when thinking about saying no. Again, I like don't know if I could actually get that in my brain far enough to use it at the time of decision. I bet you could because... Thinking about that helps you distance yourself from the ask and the person, which is one of the things that I was saying I had a hard time with. Mm-hmm. If it's just an, uh, an item on their agenda, then saying no isn't really going to be that big of a deal yeah. long term. I was actually telling, talking about saying no with a friend of mine this past weekend. We were out drinking. And we were talking about also how your respect for the person plays into your yes and no. Because I found this in my life, and she was kind of echoing this. She was basically saying, she's like, oh, I say no all the time, not a problem. And uh, she doesn't, like, have a huge level of respect for the person who she's working for right now, which is an unfortunate situation to be in. But I was then like, okay, but you don't respect the person that you're working for. Like, of course it's easier to say no because you've already distanced yourself from it in that way. Um, and in turn, honestly, like she's killing it at work because she has like unprecedented levels of respect from this person because she keeps saying no to stuff and like giving her honest opinion. So it's kind of funny. I mean, she's extremely qualified and amazing at what she does also, as all my friends are. Um, but I just thought that was kind of, it's like kind of this funny feedback loop, whereas like. I, like, have so much respect for the people I work with right now. I really love all of them. They're, like, great. And so I find, like, sometimes it's harder for me to say no to things. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, one of the things that he doesn't talk about is the flip side of saying no to things, which is if you are likely to say no to things, are you also less likely to ask things of people that may seem mundane? Uh, yeah. Well, just the reason is because it's like you'd you'd really want to think about both sides of that because if you start to ask less questions or favors or things of people to help further your own agenda or values, then maybe when you are asking a question, people who get to know you because you've set those boundaries, um, they realize that the questions you're asking are actually meaningful and then they're more likely to say not no to them. I don't know if I'm overthinking this, but it's like... 
I asked some people some mundane stuff. Yeah. Not over the top, though. Not taking advantage of anybody. It's just interesting to think about both sides of it. It is interesting. It totally is. Yeah. Does it color what you ask of other people? I think it does. It does. It totally it's does. Got to. It's yeah. got to. So I guess. Yeah. When you ask someone something you have calculated in your head already, their likeliness of saying yes. It's true. So I guess everybody can be an essentialist. Yeah. It's easy. See? We just figured it out. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's funny, though, because I say yes to things because, what? Yeah. You say yes to things because you want people to like you. But popularity and respect are not the same. Dear. All right, so let's wrap up on this now that we know that popularity and respect aren't the same and that we're obvious essentialists doing the vital few all day long. What is your takeaway? It's so funny because as you're saying that, I'm like, shit, I have two takeaways, but it's so non-essentialist of me, so I'm just going to choose one. So I'm really into the management thread lately. I'm really into dissecting how companies can function better and treat people more nicely. Mm -hmm. So my number one takeaway is teams function better if they are operating under one clear and quantifiable purpose. Love it. What's yours? My one takeaway. Honestly, that's. I feel like it's kind of hard for me in this moment. I I really love. Again, I'm gonna try to slip two in here. <laughs> See, it's hard. So, uh, I really like the idea of you can't overestimate the unimportance of nearly everything. I think it's like a super clear way to think about a lot of stuff. You're right. That really is the one standout quote that sort of identifies and embodies essentialism, and also makes it easier to say no. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well. Good read. Thanks for listening. Good read. Definitely recommend it. And if you recommend us to your friends, please also rate us five stars on iTunes. Oh, my God, yes. Please. (laughs) All right. Until next time.